The Big Red Bench. Saturday and Sunday from 6 p.m. Cork's Red FM. Welcome to a brand new edition of the Big Red Bench Women in Sport Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy McCarthy, and on this week's show, our special VIP guests are Cork and Munster LGFA Intermediate Champions Ellen Toomey and Ali McCarthy from the Glanmire LGFA Club, who talk about their fantastic season and upcoming trip to London for an All-Ireland quarterfinal. AFLW expert and Aussie rules coach Mike Curran reviews an action past first finals weekend down under in which there were some shock results and standout Irish performances. Corkshire FM rugby expert Wendy Keenan has all the latest women's AAL, Munster adult and girls youth results and news of the hugely popular Munster minis programme. Formula One expert Sarah McKenzie Foley previews this weekend's Las Vegas Grand Prix. Munster women's hockey's Graham Catchwold analyses the Irish women's hockey Olympic qualification group and has all the latest Munster women's and EY1 hockey news. We'll also hear from St. Nick's and East Cork LGFA's Gordon Kinsley ahead of this weekend's East Cork versus West Cork LGFA clash in aid of Marymount Hospice. That's all to come on this week's jam-packed Big Red Bench Women in Sport podcast. This week's Big Red Bench special guests are Glanmire LGFA's Ellen Toomey and Ali McCarthy, who spoke to me about their club's fantastic season, winning a Cork Intermediate County title at the fourth time of asking, and claiming this year's Munster LGFA Intermediate Trophy, ahead of travelling to London for an All-Ireland Intermediate quarter-final clash with Tyr Connell Gales. Now, here on Cork's Red FM's Big Red Bench, we are delighted to be joined by two members of the 2023 Cork LGFA Intermediate County Champions, and now the Munster Munster Intermediate County Champions as they prepare for an All-Ireland quarter-final meeting in London against Tyr Connell Gales, which takes place on Saturday, November the 25th. We are joined today by the captain of the Glanmire team, Ellen Toomey. Ellen, you're very welcome to the bench. Thanks, Mel, for having us on, Jer. No problem. We're also joined by Ali McCarthy. Ali, how are you? Hi, Jer. How are you? Good, thanks. Great, great. And thank you very much for taking time out of what's a very hectic schedule for the Glanmire uh, ladies football team at the moment. We'll talk very, we'll talk in a moment about the trip to London uh, and the excitement and everything around that. We'll talk about the monster success. But I'm going to start with you, Ellen, and I'm going to take you back, unfortunately, to three county final losses in a row. Losing to Clonakilty, losing to Valley Rovers, and then losing to Castlehaven on 25-metre kicks. Three intermediate county final losses in a row is an incredibly hard thing to take. One county final loss would be difficult for most, most sets of players. What happened this year, at the start of the year and as the year went on for Clanmire, to get to the intermediate final and to finally get over the line? Um, I suppose at the start of the year we kind of would have had a meeting like a players meeting at the start of the year and we kind of would have regrouped and we would have had the chat and we would have said look we need to give it our full commitment this year because we know that the intermediate county you don't win it easy and we need to give the full commitment so like we got new management on board this year they were willing to give it 110% which they have given throughout the whole year and like even the girls as well, like some of the girls, if we weren't as committed as what we were, they probably would have been travelling for the summer and stuff like that, whereas a lot of girls cut their holiday short. So yeah, I suppose losing the last three county finals, it was something that obviously it was really hard to pick yourself back up again. And we always said that we would go again, but we kind of turned the negative into a positive and we kind of took experience and hurt from those matches. And it really stood to us this year and got us across the line. And Ali, from your point of view, both, I'm, I'm talking to yourself, Ali McCarthy and Ellen Toomey, who were part of that 2018 Junior A County Champions, Munster Junior Champions and All-Ireland Junior Champions. So you know what it takes and the two of you definitely know what it takes to get to the top of the top of the mountain. But the last three years, how difficult has that been for you 
uh, as part of this panel and also I suppose how difficult have you seen like losing three county finals I just can't emphasise it enough coming back year after year it sounds like a cliche it's an incredibly difficult thing to do because this intermediate grade is not far off the senior grade and for all those years like yourselves involved when you had experienced such success did that make it all the more frustrating until you finally made the breakthrough? Yeah, I think there's two sides of it. I suppose we had we had felt that success before and when we didn't have that, the drive to want it again came back. But also, I, I don't think it was a question really for any of us whether we were coming back. We were coming back until we were going to win it. And like, there's a great group of girls and everyone has the same attitude and everyone's on board for each other. So it was just retrooping again. What can we change? What can we do better? And what sacrifices can we make? And luckily enough, it paid off this year. It certainly did, and it paid off because right from the start, I'm not even going to talk about the, the league campaign because I know you use that like to blood a lot of players and some people were coming in and out, but in the championship itself, you overcame Valley Rovers, Owendala and Dunamore, then in the semi-finals you overcame Ross Carby, and then Ali, sitting in front of you, back to MTU Cork for the fourth time in a row, well, for the fourth final in a row, but back to MTU Cork, standing in front of you are Neva Bond, who are a team like yourselves, a bit of a juggernaut, who had previously won the junior, who had previously won the Munster, and had gotten to an All-Ireland final only just come up short this was you couldn't have asked for a tougher challenge to win that intermediate so going into the final what was the mood like in the camp Ali um, you know because it's got to be preying on your mind if you lost the last three and you're about to face a team who seemed to have a huge amount of momentum behind them what was the feeling in the dressing room like and how what was that feeling afterwards like when you finally got over the line yeah well we definitely knew it was going to be a tough game there was no doubt about that a lot of the nerves were lingering, but we just came together as a collective and said, like, there's no point being nervous here now. We need to give it our all or else nothing. And I suppose what we did know was our bench is incredible as well. So we knew that the starting 15 could give it their all and know that someone else would come on and replace them and, and there'd be no change to the tempo or the pace or the skill of the game. So that was a huge benefit this year that um, up from 1 to 30 odd, like everyone was so, so excellent. Um, the feeling at the final whistle for you, Ellen, very emotional thing because you're a captain. You're going to lift that cup after so many years of hurt. It must have been a lovely, lovely feeling. Yeah, I suppose when the final whistle blew, I just, I, I, I think I went a bit numb or something. I don't know what it was. Um, I suppose I would have known the girl I was marking, Lydia. So I said I'd have to go over and make sure she was okay. And then just wherever Lydia was on the pitch, I saw my mother. So I ran over and gave mom a big hug. Then I kind of forgot about my teammates. Then I just get back onto the pitch and we were celebrating, hugging, all that sort. And to be honest with you, like we've just been so busy as well. Like it's obviously an incredible achievement, but like because we're keep ticking over, I don't think it has time really to sink in yet. Like I know we're after winning the Munster, but like I still don't even think it's something that we're county champions yet because we are so busy. So I say when we finally start to ease up a small bit, it will sink in. But after the final, it was incredible. Like, Again, so cliche, but like it's so hard to put into words. Like all the hurt and emotion kind of came out after the final whistle, and we're just it made it all sweeter, really. I think it speaks. Um, winning it this year after losing three in a row I think it speaks of the determination but also the inner belief that's grown in this group of players not just this year but over the past four or five years and with the players that were involved back in 2018 becoming All-Ireland champions and is that the key to it Ellen? I mean a lot of teams I've seen a lot of teams you know as well as I do and in the various Cork ladies football grades they get to a county final they lose it's incredibly difficult to get back to a final irrespective of the grade let alone get back after three losses like that and then to go on and win it it would have been very easy for you to just keep the celebrations and I saw the celebrations on social media they were well in swing in fairness was it easy to flick the switch Ellen and go right we did it 
okay, but we can do better here now. We can actually make a cut off Munster. Was that discussed before the county final at any stage? Or obviously, I know you didn't, you weren't trying to preempt things, but how soon after the celebrations did you go, right, we have a chance here in Munster. We need to knuckle down. Um, yeah, I don't think, like we didn't mention Munster at all this year at all. Um, now, the only thing is, is last kind of November time, I knew the manager was appointed and I actually met Vince out at, I think it was an underage county final. And I said it to him, I was like, Vince, this time next year, we're going to still be playing football and you're going to be over us. And here we are now. So we kind of laugh about that. But I think that's the only mention that we've ever had amongst the group as matches after the county final. Like we were just focusing on the county final this year. And I think it was when we went back into the dressing room, then we kind of started right there is a monster competition after this and we kind of knew ourselves I think we've always kind of said it the hardest thing is to get out of Cork like the talent in Cork is massive as it is like even standard alone like you can see it there's so many clubs that bring so much to the table so I just think once we kind of got out of Cork that was probably the biggest challenge and after this as well like there's everything's a bonus to us like it's not like our year is solely focusing on winning in All-Ireland like our focus was winning the county final this year and anything after this is a bonus that we're more than happy to take. Um, and that kind of gives us a small bit of freedom that there's not that much pressure on us and that we can go out and play football and like we're kind of enjoying it that small bit more, if you will. But we're just, we're delighted that we have the Munster. And now we're going to look, we are talking about the All-Ireland, but we're going to take it one step at a time. The London game's the next game on our mind and we're not talking about anything further on from that as well. Yes, and uh, very wise uh, not to, as you well know, though, from down through the years. And just on that, Ali, I think it's it's obvious from listening to you that the momentum, one thing, whatever about momentum, you haven't had much time in between the games from winning the county into the Munster, getting to the Munster final, having that success. It's probably helped the squad. But talk to me about the part of the world where you're from in Glenmire that suffered all that flooding. Now, I know some of the pitches where you, where you work, you lost out in some, some pitch availability at one point. But for the supporters... Ali, I mean, like, there's been a lot of, obviously, worry and heartache in the part of the world where you're from because of all that flooding. How important was it that they had something to focus on, like your success, both at county level and then all the way through Munster? Yeah, definitely. It was devastating, um, without a doubt. I mean, it was horrendous to see some of the houses destroyed in the village. Um, but if, if anything, it drove us on more, I feel. And luckily enough, the, the Camogie girls are going strong too and the Sars lads did it as well, but... I suppose just as a community, we all really came together and focused on, focused on the small wins. It was devastating what happened and the fact that we probably maybe could have given a small bit of happiness to the village um, after what happened was definitely a bonus. Yeah, that's interesting you mentioned that because I spoke, I was on the pitch after Sars won this year's uh, County Senior Camogie final over Shandoon and the players that I spoke to spoke very much like you just said there that, you know, it was a spur rather than, you know, something that was a, a deterrent, you know, it wasn't something that was playing in their minds, but the players were that bit more determined, Ali, that they wanted to do it, not just for themselves, but for the area and what they'd been through to give them that bit of happiness. It, it sounds so cliche, but it's actually true because anyone that's been through flooding and anyone that knows anything about flooding, it's a horrific thing to have to go through. But ye have done done something really special this year and I think off the back of so many disappointments you must you must have given players an extra boost to win it and then to see what the effect you, I've seen all the photographs of family members uh, running onto the pitch after the Monaghan Munster final and like all the happiness that she brought are you aware of that are you still so kind of focused and insular within your dressing room and you know one game at a time that you've had time to think about it um, yeah no look I suppose like kind of straight off the bat we would look at ourselves and we're delighted with ourselves but then 
kind of as like on Sunday as we made our way through the crowd up to collect the trophy or whatever, we would have been bumping into people that have no family ties or connections to the team. Like they just come out because maybe they have kids on the underage and they're coming out and supporting. But then there's other people like our parish priest, priest went to like Tipperary, he came to the Munster final, like he's travelling to all the matches as well. So when you look at stuff like that, to like our priest who has absolutely no connections family-wise or anything like that, and they're coming to the matches and they're getting so much joy out of it as well, it's not just the team and our immediate family that are affected by it in a good way, because obviously there's light for us, it's the whole community that is really thriving off of it. And also as well, I do think it's really important to mention that like there's surrounding parishes around us that have helped us out when we were missing out on our pitches. Like Delaney's have been so good to give us pitches when we were out of action. I know Aaron's own and Glenville have been helping out the Sarah's girls as well. And I think the lads as well were getting black rap and Brian Dillon's. I'm not 100% certain now, but like it just goes to show like the GA is such a community as well. And like people were reaching out because they knew we had matches coming up. Like we're representing Cork, if you will, at the end of the day. And they wanted to make sure that we were right for our matches and they were offering up our pitches, their pitches for us. And we're just so, so grateful for that as well. Very well said, and I'm sure, as you said, you do see the community spirit off the pitch when things like this happen. It's lovely to hear that, not just for the uh, your own team, but all the surrounding teams as well. Um, Ali, the the Munster final was eight points to one three. It was a fantastic day in the club's history, winning another Munster title, an intermediate Munster title over a very, very dogged and very, very experienced Limerick club. At this point of the season, much like the men's uh, Munster championships in football, anyway the scores start coming down. It becomes more contracted. You don't have the free-flowing football that you might have had in the group stage of your county championship success. How different was that county final in terms of setup, in terms of tactics, and in terms of, you know, not giving anything silly away? I mean, you held this team to 1-3, and that took a huge defensive effort. Yeah, well, like I've mentioned before, we knew it was going to be a tough game, um, but I think one of the key things was not to change too much about the style that we were playing because it was working for us. You know, if, if something's not broken, don't fix it. But we knew that we would definitely have to tweak to suit their style of play. Um, like we were down by three points at half time, and we 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 came off at half time actually, and we we weren't overly pleased with how we were performing. So we knew that 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 was a good sign that we were lucky enough up. And if anything, it pushed us to drive on in the second half and get it off the line. But definitely the the scores. A lot of them came from freeze as well on both sides. So it just goes to show how hard it is to actually get in there went from the play and score from the play, which is, is a tribute to both defenders on both teams, I would say. And uh, yeah, again, that's very well very well put. And considering it, that was such a tight game and all the excitement that came afterwards with it, Ellen, now you go to London. You gotta get on a plane, you gotta fly to London to play at Connell Gales on Saturday, November the 25th in an All-Ireland, uh, quarter final. There was a lot of excitement, obviously, about that. And a lot of younger players, especially on the panel, are going to really enjoy that. But again, this is the thing. You're, there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of hype. We're talking about it here on the radio. We're talking about it on, on Cork Street FM. But you have a match to win. And, you know, you've come so far. Obviously, the focus of the players will be just on going over there, getting the job done and coming home. But a lot of excitement and a huge, um, a huge moment for a lot of the younger players on your panel specifically that the experience they're gaining this year not just from the run in the county and you know getting that monkey off your backs but winning a provincial title and maybe just maybe going a bit further in the All-Ireland series how important is that but how important is it that you get to London and you do the job yeah I know it's crucial and like as you said like we do have a very young panel um, like the excitement might kick in and people might take their eye off the ball when it comes to the match but 
I don't think that will happen like a lot like amongst our team like all year we've been building a panel so everyone feels so part of it like one like we're chopping and changing our team the whole time if you're not starting in a county final you'd be starting in the Munster quarter final and then you might find yourself starting in a Munster final if you haven't started all year like it's just mad that we just have such a good panel that we can slash anyone in and we have 30 odd players there as well but because we're after developing such a panel we have so many leaders as well on the pitch and stuff like that so that like we kind of take one of the younger girls under a wing if you will and we'll kind of look out for them that way and like we have such a professional management team as well that they'll have a, a routine sorted out. Like it's not going to be wishy-washy. They're going to have an agenda sorted for us. And they're not like they. this will be on their mind as well that look, we're traveling, we have a different routine than we're not used to. And they're going to make sure that we're like focused on the game and we know what's ahead of us. And like, yeah, we are traveling to London and um, there'll be a couple of Irish girls over there playing and stuff like that. And it might be their first sport over in England, but we, we can't go out with that attitude. We have to go out with it. It is the team that's going to beat us. It's going to go down to the wire and we have to go out and perform or we're not going to come back with the result. So it's hugely important that we get our focus right. We know it's going to be a tough game ahead of us. And hopefully, if that is the case, we'll regroup and then we'll have a week in between the quarter and the semi-final, hopefully. But again, London's primary focus. It certainly is. And Ali, we uh, we mentioned Vincey Barry, Justin Fleetingly, uh, there a while back uh, earlier on in the conversation. But from your point of view, and somebody that had been through an All-Ireland success in 2018, how how much of an influence obviously they're a big influence but the management team of Vincey Barry coming in this year and, and galvanising the, the troops to go on this run how important have they been and how how easy I mean it's a difficult job for them to pick you up after three county final losses and build again but they've obviously done a fantastic job Ali but how important have they been for ye the experienced players and also the not so experienced players yeah, well, like it's with it, they've been so professional, and I feel like the spec the specialization this year has just been incredible. Like we have Vincey, who's the manager, uh, Connor is our coach. Then we have a running coach who's Damien. Uh, we have a kicking coach, Jamesy, and we have a goalie coach, Billy. And then we have uh, physio Esther. Like, and I suppose just like we've never had anything like that before. So just that side of the profession, the professional side of that, I suppose, really stood to us this year that. If any of us were struggling in one particular area, we knew we could go to that was specialising in that area to improve us. Um, and I do think that really usually helped us this year in regards to all round playing on the pitch, not just focusing on one particular element. Jerome, after getting one of the most important men, Sully O'Sullivan, there also a huge selector part of our team. Like I couldn't leave him out. So sorry to backtrack on that one. Not at all. I mean, if we forgot Sully, we'd all be in big trouble. He'd be after me as well. So fair play. <laughs> uh, you, and, and with so many people to thank, this happens all the time. No problem at all, Ali. And look, it's fantastic. It's been a fantastic story. It's been a fantastic season for Glenmore Ladies Football. We've enjoyed here on Cork Shred FM's Big Red Bench following your success, both winning the Cork LGFA Senior or Cork LGFA Intermediate County title, winning the Munster Intermediate County title and now flying out on Saturday, November the 25th to London to take on Tyr Connell Gales in the All-Ireland Intermediate Quarterfinals. Um, this journey didn't just begin this year, it began back in 2018 when you won the All-Ireland and since then all that heartbreak with the three finals, that's all done and put away with now, it's in the history books. You've had a fantastic run and from everybody here on Cork Shred FM's Big Red Bench, we wish you all the luck in London. Hopefully you can get that victory, bring it home and keep this season going. But we really appreciate the time. Thank you Ellen Toomey and thank you Ali McCarthy for joining us here on the Big Red Bench. Thank you. Thank you. The Big Red Bench. Saturday and Sunday from 6 p.m. 
AFLW Ireland's Mike Curran joins me on this week's Cork Street FM Big Red Bench Women in Sport podcast to provide analysis, comment and his expert opinion on what was a cracking first weekend of AFLW qualifying and elimination finals action. Mike runs the rule over every individual Irish player's performance and we analyse Brisbane Lions win over Adelaide, Sydney Swans victory away to the Gold Coast Suns, Geelong Cats defeating the Essendon Bombers and the North Melbourne Kangaroos hammering city rivals Melbourne Demons. Mike and I also look ahead to this weekend's semi-final matchups as the AFLW season heads towards its 2023 Grand Final on December the 3rd. Now then, uh, we're joined now by our resident AFLW expert and coach to the stars from AFLW Ireland, Mike Curran, to look back on a very, very eventful first finals week. Uh, Mike, you're very welcome back to the Big Red Bench. How are you? Very good, Jerry. Thank you. Uh, great to have you on with us. We have uh, not as many games as we usually have to go through, but uh, oh boy, do we have a lot to talk about. So let's start last Saturday at November 11th, the first qualifying final to get a massive weekend underway and a big surprise. The Brisbane Lions defeating the Adelaide Crows uh, 39-37. The Adelaide Crows Irish for this season are Niamh Kelly and Yvonne Bonner and the Brisbane Lions Irish are Orla O'Dwyer and Jennifer Dunn. But the Lions holding off the Crows in a thriller to earn a home preliminary finals game is one thing. Um, It also has blown the whole Premiership race wide open. But one Irish player stood out in particular and generated plenty of positive headlines from a surprise result, Mike. It was. Look, as you said, we've less games this week. We might have less in quantity, but the quality is definitely there. A fantastic week to open the AFLW finals. You know, uh, three of the four games saw the lower teams come out on top with 15 Irish players in action this weekend. So loads to look at. But what a game to open the finals weekend, the qualifying final, Brisbane Lions versus Adelaide Crows. You're right, Adelaide Crows were probably the favourites, but definitely Brisbane were every chance here. We've seen during the year that on their day they can beat anybody, uh, but it was that consistency that we were looking out for. But yeah, at Norwood Oval, um, with over 4,000 people in attendance, it was an absolute belter of a game. You know, the Lions led at the end of the first quarter, the Crows led at half time, mainly due to a siren beating goal from Neve Kelly, an absolutely brilliant goal. Um, it was level at three quarter time, five goals, three behinds apiece each. And then in an absolutely tense final quarter, the Crows had more opportunities. They scored four behinds, but the Lions got the crucial goal and the only goal in that quarter to win the game by two. And uh, Irish player Yvonne Bonner even had a kick with 20 seconds to go to potentially win it for the for the Crows, even though it was a long way out. But it literally came down to, to that final whistle. So um, the Lions have now beaten the Crows twice this year. They beat them just three weeks ago as well in round eight. There was only three points in it on that occasion. There was only two points in it in this one. So um, any game between the Lions and the Crows is, is guaranteed to be a, a classic. But if you look at it, I suppose in terms of was it a surprise or not, in terms of the head-to-head between the Adelaide Crows and Brisbane Lions, um, the Lions have now eight wins in 11 games. So that's a stat that, that most people that wouldn't be aware of against the Crows. And the Crows are arguably the best team in the competition since it began. So... They definitely seem to be able to beat Adelaide when the chips are down. Um, so, as I say, in this game, they opened the stronger. The Crows kind of dominated from then on. They won all the stats, but didn't really take advantage, advantage of it. They had the top seven disposal winners in terms of players on the ground. But Brisbane's defence was absolutely immense. And they played, I suppose, with desperation and pressure right from the start. And one of the best players on the pitch was Orlo O'Dwyer. Again, Orla is brilliant week in and week out, but always comes to the fore in finals. She scored two goals, one of them absolutely outstanding goal off her left from the boundary line. 
um, at a crucial time in the game. It would be goal of the year if, if the goal of the year wasn't already done and dusted in the home and away season. Um, and she also had eight tackles for the game as well, so ferocious when she was off the game. And in terms of the other Irish for Brisbane Lions, Jennifer Dunn really, really did a great job. She's only played a few games, but she's quickly becoming a key defender, a key tall defender for the Lions. She did a shutdown job on Crow's key forward, Caitlin Gould. And the second week in a row, she's taken out a key forward. So she's becoming a very important player for the Lions. And across on the Crow side, then you had Neve Kelly, who we mentioned there with that fantastic goal at halftime. And Yvonne Bonner also playing exceptionally well since coming back from injury. She had five marks up front as well as six tackles. Uh, but yeah, an absolute brilliant uh, game to start the weekend. It certainly was. And as you said, I, I wasn't aware of that fantastic record that Brisbane have over uh, the time playing the Crows, but just with the Crows finishing top of the ladder, coming into it and looking to kick on and, you know, get home advantage as well in, in the preliminary final stages. Fantastic performance from Brisbane and fantastic individual performances you've outlined there uh, from Orla O'Dwyer, who's, you know, made a lot of headlines reading about that game afterwards and watching the highlight. It's fantastic to see her injury free and doing so well. But it does also mean, even though Brisbane are automatically through now to a preliminary final it is not the end of the Adelaide Crows because this was a qualifying final so they will get a second chance and we'll talk a little bit about more about that in a little bit later on but a fantastic result for Brisbane disappointment for Adelaide but Adelaide not gone just yet one game that uh, immediately after that last Saturday in the AFL finals week one was the first of the elimination finals and this was a loser go home out of the competition so there was quite a lot at stake the Gold Coast Suns were defeated by the Sydney Swans, 58-41. The Gold Coast Irish uh, this year have been Clara Fitzpatrick, Niamh McLaughlin and Cara McCrossan. And the Sydney Swans Irish, Jennifer Higgins, Paris McCarthy, Julia Sullivan and Tanya Kennedy. And once again, Mike, headlines coming out of this one because the Swans fairy tale season continues. Their first ever finals appearance. And is am I stretching it? Is this a bigger shock by the fact, not just the fact that they beat the Suns, but by 17 points? Yeah, look, and again, it, it's a team overturning a team that was higher up the, the ladder than them, I suppose. So the Suns would have been favourites going into this one, but you've hit the nail on the head there. The Swans are on a roller coaster of momentum in this fairy tale season, going from winless last year to not only qualifying for a finals, which was a success in itself, but, but to win an elimination final. So, so they march on. So they are absolutely flying, you know, and they set up this victory really in, in the first quarter. They got four goals in that first quarter. Uh, the Suns never gave up from then on in, and they, but the Swans just moved the ball exceptionally well. And again, it matters every day, but it matters more in final. The pressure and tackles, uh, Sydney Swans had 105 tackles in this game. Uh, that's amongst the top two tackle scores in the whole season. The other one was in this round as well, by the way, but again, 65 for the Suns. So that just shows the hard work and pressure from the start. Um, that stood to them in the end. And for the Swans, look at their star players stood up again, captain and their, their big stars was Chloe Malloy, their high profile signing. She was excellent again. She scored some crucial goals herself. Uh, there was an infamous moment where there was a chant from the crowd where someone shouted out two, four, six, eight, she can't kick straight. <laughs> and Chloe Malloy showed them that she definitely can kick straight. She scored a goal and she had a, a response to that fan, which I think we'll be watching for many years to come. It was a, a brilliant impromptu response uh, from her. But yeah, she's a star. And some of the other players as well, the vice captain, Lucy McAvoy, she moved up forward when one of their key forwards, Beck Privatelli, got injured and she scored a goal. So the big names standing up for um, Swans. Next would have been 
Tanya Kennedy for the Irish Swan player, who is the best of the Irish girls on the night. Absolutely brilliant. She's having a breakout uh, season. Normally, she's like a, 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 a tagging midfield player, and she was on the Suns star player, Claudia Whitford, and did a great job on keeping her under wraps. But she also notched up 22 disposals for herself, as well as 10 tackles. So she was the best of the Irish on the night of the Swan side. That also featured Julia Sullivan and Paris McCarthy. And on the Sun side, the sole Irish son in this one was Neve McLaughlin, who again had had a brilliant day. And there was a nice picture afterwards of Tanya Kennedy and Neve McLaughlin, obviously both Donegal teammates and both teammates from playing on the Irish soccer um, international stage at underage level as well. So uh, it was the, the battle of Donegal in that one. But um, for the Suns as well, some of the other star players, Tara Bohanna was brilliant. She scored four goals for the Suns again. She scored multiple goals in many games across the season. But it is the Swans that march on to a semi-final. The Suns are probably going to be a bit disappointed because on paper they would have been the favourite. But in general, they're going to be very happy with their overall season. Six wins and a draw from uh, the home and away season and a finals appearance. But yeah, this, uh, this fairy tale rolls on for the Swans. It certainly does. The Swans in their first ever finals appearance into uh, next weekend's first of the semi-finals. We'll talk about that a little, uh, little later on. The Gold Coast Sun season is over, as you said, but a very, very positive one for them and plenty to build on including their Irish contingent for 2024. 105 tackles, I can't get over that. That's sensational. Well done to the Sydney Swans. We move on to Sunday, November the 12th, and the second qualifying final in which the Geelong Cats defeated the Essendon Bombers 51-33. The Geelong Cats Irish for this season were Rachel Kearns, Ashley Maloney and Rose Kennedy. And the Essendon Irish is Joanne Doonan. The Cats winning an AFLW final for the first time in their history, Mike, and an 18-point victory, deserving winners in this one. Yeah, they were deserving winners. And this one, you know, um, they literally bolted out of the, of the blocks. They scored 3-4 in the first quarter to one behind. But three of those goals were within the first eight minutes. So in the first half of that first quarter. So that definitely stunned Essendon. And you'd have to wonder if they had a little bit of stage fright in their first final. But the damage was really done in that first quarter. It was then seven goals, seven behinds uh, to two goals at halftime. So... Geelong were well in in front from there, even though they didn't score a goal at all in the second half, as Essendon impressively fought back uh, with three of their own. But in the end, it was um, the Cats that held out and in front of a big crowd down in GHMBA Stadium in Geelong. Of course, it was a home match for them. 6,678 people, so great atmosphere on that one. Um, Cats, very impressive. You know, we've been mentioning the last couple of weeks that they lost narrowly their final against North Melbourne Last season, they were hoping to make amends for that. They also lost to Geelong during the home and away season this year. Uh, so they wanted to make amends for that as well. And we mentioned last week that it was going to be the battle of the Perspacus sisters, two of the stars of the game, Maddie playing for Essendon and Georgie playing for Geelong. But it turned out it was Georgie with the show, or star of the show in this game, 23 disposals uh, and a goal for her. Uh, but look, yeah, Cats were strongest all around. They dominated all the main stats. We had a big performance from their captain, Meg McDonald, who had a tough week uh, as her father passed away this week. So very brave of her to, to play and play so well. Um, but um, in terms of the Irish, Ashley Maloney was brilliant. This was her best game so far. Uh, we've seen it. We've seen her in patches across the home away season, but she put in a really full uh, performance here, really stood up. Uh, Cats star forward, Chloe Shear, went down with a shoulder injury. And she's likely to miss the, the game next week as a result of that. But Ashley Maloney scored two goals herself, had 18 disposals, 
And the most impressive stat was eight marks. So she was a real aerial threat up front and Essendon just didn't have anybody to mark her. Uh, and uh, the Cats side, of course, also featured Rachel Cairns. But yes, it's Geelong into a, a semi-final for the first ta- time ever. Um, Essendon's season is good, but or is, is done, I should say. But again, they'll be happy. It's only their second ever season. They had six wins in the home and away season and they got into a finals. Um, so all, all in all, it will have been a successful season for the Bombers. But it's the Cats that move to next week. It is indeed. The Cats move to next week. A very, very good win, as you said. Seven goals, nine behinds, overcoming the Bombers, and they they go forward. The Bombers, we will talk about again next season, but plenty to build on. Finally, the last game of the weekend was the second elimination final. It was a derby. It was between the Melbourne Demons and the North Melbourne Kangaroos, and again, plenty of Irish interest in this because on the Melbourne Demons roster this year, Sinead Goldrick, Blaheen Mackin, and Amy Mackin, and on the North Melbourne Kangaroos lineup, Eilish Considine, Eric O'Shea, and Neve Martin, and what it what a game it turned into one goal and three behinds nine points in total for the Melbourne Demons seven goals eight behinds for North Melbourne Kangaroos a total of 50 a massive Irish interest and as we said but it was the Kangaroos who won in emphatic fashion hammering their city rivals Melbourne by a whopping 41 points now the victory is fantastic Mike but did you see the margin of this victory coming? No certainly not and I don't think anybody did you know this was the result of the the final, but the results of the competition, probably one of the results across the last few seasons in terms of the significance of it. You know, not only did North win, but they were absolutely devastating and dominant. And I suppose they definitely put to bed any talks of a, of a hex against the top three. And they'll be a, a pains to say they weren't even looking at that, but I'm definitely sure it was in the back of their minds somewhere. You know, um, they're currently three for 16 games against the top team, but you wouldn't think it at the weekend. You know, they absolutely dominated from the start. Melbourne Demons did not score a goal at all until the fourth quarter. It was their second lowest score ever, and it was their second biggest loss ever. So a rude awakening for the Ds, um, and this has broken a run of six straight losses to the Demons from, for an arch as well. So, And that stretches back as far as 2019 season. So huge significance to it. And, you know, again, it was just an all-around performance for North Melbourne from the start. Um, Talia Randall was a star up front, one of their new tall forwards scoring three goals. Um, but it was the Kangaroos' ferocious pressure throughout, absolutely exceptional defence, and I suppose forward connection. They really made it work when the ball went up front. But we mentioned uh, tackles, uh, talking about one of the games a few minutes ago, 104 tackles for North Melbourne, the second highest in history. So the two highest tackle counts in history have come in two games in the finals last weekend. And again, it just shows that pressure works. Um, in terms of the Mel- Melbourne star forwards, you know, we've got Kate Hoare and Eden Zanker, who are the giant Eden scorers in the league, have been uh, dominating all season. They were shut down completely, uh, didn't score. And I suppose Eden Zanker didn't get a touch. She only had one disposal at three-quarter time and was actually moved out to the the, the centre of the field at that stage to try and get on the ball. So that just shows how good Melbourne's defence was. That was really the foundation that the, the win was built on. And again, through the middle then, Jasmine Garner, we've talked about her every other week. Um, she was heavily shadowed but was still hugely in, influential. And this week as well, before the finals, we've heard that she has won the AFL Coaches AFLW Champion Player of the Year Award for an incredible third time, the only player to win it multiple times, not to mind three times. So she's one of the best in the competition and North are lucky to have her. But overall, this is, I suppose, a huge confidence boost for North. Um, and in in a way, it's throwing the, the demons 
totally out of whack because that's two losses to the two big teams now, two games in a row. Um, but really, it, it throws the whole finals wide open. Brilliant for North. Delighted to see, you know, because they were so close in the preliminary finals last season. I've mentioned it a few times. I was down at, at that game and they did everything but win. So it's brilliant to get over the line with a win against Melbourne. But that it was so impressive and so dominant, I suppose, is what's got everybody sitting up and taking notice. And North Melbourne will definitely have an influence across the next couple of weeks. They certainly will, as you said, and very uh, excellently, as always, explained why they won that game and how the 104 tackles again. There's the difference maker. But 50 to 9 over Melbourne in such an important game, I think it shows that North are ready for this challenge. Now, what it means is, after all those results, we do know now that there are two preliminary finals coming up uh, in a couple of weeks' time. Brisbane Lions are through to, through to one of those, and North Melbourne are through to the other. Who takes those? Uh, teams on will be decided next weekend on Saturday November the 18th the first semi-final is between the Adelaide Crows and the Sydney Swans at the Norwood Oval and that's followed on Sunday by the second final Melbourne Demons taking on the Geelong Cats at Icon Park and what it all means is there's no more back doors this is it it's knockout all the way and the winners of that Melbourne and Geelong game on Sunday will face Brisbane in one preliminary, preliminary final while the winners of Adelaide and Sydney Swans will then face the North Melbourne Kangaroos in the second preliminary final it's getting very very interesting Interesting, Mike. How do you see these two semi-finals going? Adelaide against Sydney and Melbourne against Geelong. Oh, look at it! It's intriguing. I suppose in both semi-finals, we've got a team that uh, has everything to lose in terms of the Crows and Melbourne, and we've two teams that have nothing to lose in terms of Sydney Swans and Geelong. So it's a it's a unique situation. You know, you've Adelaide Crows coming off that narrow loss against the Lions, facing Sydney Swans, who are, who are on that fairy tale run, as we've mentioned already. Uh, Sydney will not be afraid of Adelaide Crows again on paper there's only one winner here but anything can happen as we have seen uh, so Crows are going to be ha- have to be on their best um, for sure and you know probably some of the things that they'll take away from losing the game at the weekend is that they were ahead in terms of stats and possessions and stuff but they didn't make it count so I think uh, composure for them will be will be key we've seen that uh, the pressure that the Lions brought was able to upset them a bit but You've heard us mention uh, a bit earlier that Sydney Swans had a huge tackle count as well. So they're going to bring the pressure. So it'll be interesting to see how Adelaide goes deal with that pressure two weeks in a row. But yeah, that's uh, an intriguing game to watch. As I say, a team on an absolute dream season going from winless to being in a semi-final against the, arguably the best team ever playing the sport. Three times winners already. They're now in a, in a battle for their lives to get into a preliminary final to chase that four premiership. And then if you look at the other side, Melbourne versus Geelong, you know, Melbourne have lost two games, two weeks in a row to top two teams. Are they weakened? Are they a bit vulnerable? Are they a little bit out of sorts? You'd have to think there are. So either one or two things is going to happen. Either Geelong are going to, are going to smell blood here and they're going to go for it. And they're, they're going to cause what would be somewhat of an upset, but not out of the question on the way Geelong are playing at the minute or else... Melbourne are going to stand up as champions. They're going to bounce back and they're going to get over the line against Geelong and back into a preliminary final where they would have expected to be. So absolutely two belters, two crackers of games coming up here and and anything is possible. Uh, And as you say, the prize is to get to a preliminary final, to wait and face North Melbourne or Lions. So no easy games from here on in. There certainly is not an 
Next week's two semi-finals are half as good as what we saw in the elimination qualifying final weekend. We're in for an absolute treat. All the roads, of course, leading to Sunday, December the 3rd and 2023 AFL Women's Grand Final. We'll be here every step of the way, previewing and reviewing and analysing just exactly how it's all going to work out. Neither of us, I think, at the moment know how that's going to happen, what's going to happen, which makes it all the more intriguing. But once again here on the Big Red Bench for your expertise and your analysis, Mike Cran of AFLW Ireland, thanks for joining us. And before we let you go, where can we find some additional online content uh, in the build-up to these two semi-finals and afterwards. Yeah, still look at a hectic couple of weeks coming up. There's 16 left. There's still 14 Irish players involved. You can catch up on all the news and updates on at AFLW underscore Ireland on, across all the social media platforms, primarily Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok at AFLW underscore Ireland. And we'll be keeping all the updates of what's happening between now and the games uh, from weekend to weekend until we have a winner for 2023. Excellent stuff, Mike. Once again, thanks for joining us on the Big Red Bench, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks so much, Sarah. The Big Red Bench. Saturday and Sunday from 6 p.m. Monster Women's Hockey PRO Graham Catchpole is on the Big Red Bench Women in Sport podcast to review the latest rounds of the Monster Women's Hockey season. Graham provides results and scores from all the recent women's EY1 and women's Monster Division 1 games. Graham and I also look ahead to this weekend's Munster Women's Hockey matches. We also analyse the Irish Senior Women's Hockey Team's 2024 Olympic qualifying draw, where Ireland now know that they'll face Belgium, Korea and Ukraine in Valencia next January. Now, another week of uh, EY1 and Munster Women's Division 1 hockey is in the books and there's plenty more action to come again this coming weekend. So no better man than the Munster Hockey PRO Graham Catchball to join us here on the Big Red Bench once again this week to take us through all the latest action and preview what's coming up. Graham, you're very welcome back to the bench. How are you? Thanks, Joe. All good now and yourself? Not too bad. Busy, busy, busy like yourself. We start, before we get into the EY1 and before we get into Munster Division 1, we spoke last week about the draws, or the seedings rather, for the upcoming uh, Paris Olympic qualifiers in the uh, international women's hockey. Now, we knew last time we spoke that uh, Ireland were going to be playing in Valente, but we didn't know against two. But that has all been decided now, and you have news of Ireland's uh, Olympic qualifying draw. Yeah, so uh, Ireland have been drawn in Pool A along with Belgium, Korea and Ukraine. Um, so a, a tricky, tricky assignment for, for the Irish team, but it was always going to be tricky. Um, in the other group, who will be, you've got Great Britain, Spain, uh, Canada and Malaysia. Um, I suppose out of this tournament, three will qualify for the Paris Olympics. Um, so Ireland have to finish in the top two um, of their group. Um, and then it will be semi-final and either a final or a third place uh, playoff for the, for the Irish team. On paper, Graham, and I don't know much about the Korean hockey scene, I will level with you, but the fact that they are ranked 12th and we are 13th, is this heading into the tournament before they even get to Valencia, on paper at least, is this the kind of key game for them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Ireland will be expected to beat Ukraine and have, have good pedigree against them in, in the past. Um, the Belgians are, are very strong. Um, they'll, they'll be a tough nut to crack, and I suppose anything out of that game will be will be a bonus push. Ultimately, it's probably going to come down to that match against uh, Korea, who are ranked just one place ahead of the Irish. Um, as I said last week, you know the the Asian style of hockey tends to be very pacey. You know, play on the break, and uh, it's quite different to the to the Irish style or the European style, really. Um, so it'll make for a very very interesting uh, interesting match. Um, all going well, I suppose. You know, the Irish finishing the top two and. Not looking too far ahead, but you know, Great Britain and Spain will probably be your your favourites to qualify from from Pool B. Uh, um, 
and then it will be obviously a shootout between between Ireland and the semi final, maybe against either Great Britain or Spain, and and depending then either a final against one or the two of them or or Belgium again, or or, or basically a third place playoff to see see who gets into the uh, into the Paris Olympics. So. Yeah, it's going to be tough for the Irish, but um, you know none of these Olympic qualifier mm. tournaments are going to be easy. So um, they're not going to have it uh, simple. Um, they're actually out in in Spain at the moment on a on a training um, exercise. So they're out there for the for the week um, doing a block of training, I suppose, in advance um, at the at the venue. So that'll be good preparation for when they do go out there in tournament mode um, in, in January. Yeah, and as you said, it's January might seem a lot, no, I know it's not that far off, but it might seem a long way off now, but the fact, and I was going to bring that up, I'm glad you mentioned it, I did see on Instagram and the Irish Women's Hockey account that they were out in Spain, that obviously preparations have improved an awful lot over the last number of years with the Irish Women's Hockey International setup, and that obviously they're going to take it seriously and the buy-in is there. But they have a real opportunity here now, as you know, as you said, when you get to qualifiers, you know, you up the ante, it becomes very, very tight all of a sudden and any bit of edge that you can possibly get, you need to take. But the fact that they're out there now, the fact that we've got a lot of players who seem to be quite in form as well, uh, both for their clubs and recently um, making headlines for all the right reasons. When Ireland's women's hockey preparation is as good as it can be right now, Graham, and they're giving themselves every opportunity by going out, looking at the facilities and familiar, familiarising themselves before it starts in, in, in January because it's going to be quite intense. It'll be three, four, hopefully five games very, very quickly. Yeah, and I think that's that's the thing that's maybe changed in, in in the Irish hockey approach. I suppose over the last ten years, you know, it has become far more professional. It's, it's become more and more organised, and it has to be because you're you're competing against these nations that have you know full time programs, you know, paid professional hockey players. Uh, um, so that is the level you're competing against. So you've got to you've got to bring absolutely everything, leave no stone un, un, unturned, and, and certainly. Um, that 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 Irish team will will give themselves every chance um, to qualify for the Paris Olympics. Indeed, they will. We wish them all the best. We're going to be talking quite a lot about it uh, in the lead up to it and during and afterwards as well. But in January, Ireland now know for the Paris Olympic qualifiers, they will face the fourth seeds Belgium, the twelve seeds Korea, and the twenty eight seeds Ukraine in a round robin, hoping to be finishing the top two. That would take them into a semi final against one of Great Britain, Spain, Canada, and Malaysia, probably the first two there, and then uh, two opportunities to secure that qualification for the Olympics. As I said, we will talk about it again, I've no doubt, in the, in the run-up to it and certainly when it's all happening. Now, to domestic matters and some inter- interesting results, to put it mildly, both in the women's EY1 and the Munster Division 1 in recent days, Graham. Yeah, so in EY1, uh, Catholic Institute had an excellent um, away win to, to Old Alex, uh, 3-1 victory. Uh, Naomi Carroll, um, Kira Maloney and uh, Sarah Fitzgerald um, on the score sheet for, for the Limerick side. Um, that actually lifts them up the table to fourth. So that'll just tell you how, how close that table is. Um, and into, I suppose that, that champions trophy fourth place early in the season still. And, and look, um, pl- plenty of, plenty of matches ahead. Uh, but look, it puts them right in the mix. And, uh, you know, anytime I suppose you travel away to, to Leinster opposition and come away with a victory, um, is, 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 um, is, is a great result. So well done to them. Um, in the women's, uh, Monster Division one, um, last week, uh, UCC went away to Bandon and won 2-1. Um, so Nikki Barry and, and, and Jane Murphy with the goals there. Ingrid Burns with, with Bandon's goal. Um, and then last weekend, uh, Church of Ireland, um, I suppose got, got a good result against Bandon again. You know, quick turnaround for Bandon there. Uh, two goals from Alex O'Grady sealing it there, 2-0. Uh, Crescent had a, had a very good win against, um, Ashton. So, 
present, showing that they're well able to to mix it with um with the big boys, you know, coming up up from division division two last year. So a three two win for them. Um, and then BlackRock had a good strong away win to, uh, to, to Waterford, Amory O'Connell and Jill O'Leary with the goals for, for BlackRock there. Yeah, excellent results all around. But that Catholic Institute one, as you said, and we've, you've talked at length about the experience and the importance of being competitive in EY1. This is the top tier and, uh, Catholic Institute, I mean, not just this particular run and well done to them, as you said, winning away in Dublin, but the fact that the boost that they get by being in the mix for that top four finish, that the, hopefully the momentum garnered from that, Graham, will keep them going now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they, they seem to be, they seem to be only a, Goal off if they, if if you know if they, if they are losing matches. So you know, as I said, the margins this year. If you look at the score lines, they are so yeah. so tight. And even even the game at the weekend, they were going into the last quarter, one goal up, and it was you know they they just managed to get a, a second goal to kind of seal it at the end. Uh, but it's it's been a, it's been one of those seasons so far. Yes, you can look at the table and say Loretto seemed to be a small bit ahead of of, of the rest, and even Ray Reunion are kind of staying on their on their coattails. But there really is, you know, there, there, there's nothing between those teams, you know, one to ten there really this season. Very, very close. It is very, very close. Uh, and as we said, some excellent results. And we'll talk about the uh, the setup as well in the Women's Monster Division 1 and EY1 standings very, very shortly. But before we do that, let's take a quick check on the fixtures that are coming up. Beginning with tonight on Thursday evening, uh, Graham, with an interesting game. Yeah, the, the, I suppose this is one we've probably been waiting for since uh, since the start of the season. So... Um, Harlequins host UCC, um, this evening at 7 p.m. in, 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 uh, Harlequins Park or Farmers Crosses zone. Um, so this is, uh, this is a real, uh, six pointer, I suppose, at the, at the top of the, the Munster Senior League. Harlequins and UCC, 100% record so far. Um, and, and seem to have separated themselves from the, from the rest of the, the teams in the league at the moment. So it's going to be a, a really interesting fixture. Um, it's the first of obviously two fixtures that they play against each other in the league this year. But at the moment, looks like these two fixtures could could decide the destination of the of the league title. So, um, yeah, if you if you have the chance, get up to Harlequins, um, uh, you know, seven o'clock for for what promises to be a great game. And on to Saturday then as well. Uh, we continue with some uh, interesting fixtures further down the table. Yeah, I mean, uh, you've got three interesting ones with, with, I suppose, the rest of the pack so close together. Um, I suppose each team is trying to, trying to look to, to climb that table and, you know, a victory can, can go a long way to doing that. Um, C of I hosts Ashton, which is always a very, very close, uh, local rivalry. Um, Blackrock hosts Bandon. Again, it's been a very close match of late and Blackrock have been, have been doing very well under Paulie Hartnett this year. Uh, Crescent again are, are home comforts and, and face UCC and will, after last weekend's result against Ashton, will, will maybe fancy an upset against UCC, um, and Harlequins then travel to, tra- travel to Waterford, um, and, and that will be strong favourites, I suppose, to, to get all three points there. Indeed they will, but as we said, the big one tonight, Harlequins taking on UCC at seven o'clock, um, and that is hugely significant because at the top of the women's, uh, division one standings, UCC currently have a three point gap on Harlequins, but they have an extra game played. After that, you have three teams on seven points, Ashton, Crescent, and Blackrock, all looking to jockey for position there, and not too far behind Church of Ireland and Waterford as well, with Bandon bringing up the rear. We take one quick check as well of the EY1 standings because it's fantastic to see Catholic Institute up in fourth place behind Pembroke Wanderers, uh, Railway 
Union and the runaway leaders at the moment, Loretto Hockey Club, but a fantastic season for Catholic Institute thus far. And let's hope they can keep that going. And we finish, as we always do, with the most popular segment, I'm afraid to say, Graham, not you and I, but the goal scorer section. Not much change this week, but there are a clutch of players on three goals. I just wanted to give them a mention. Uh, Quiva Gaffney from Crescent, Naomi Carroll. Uh, from Catholic Institute, Robin Murphy from UCC, Alex O'Grady and Kira Sexton from Church of Ireland, Cleanest Sargent from Harlequins, and we've even more players on four goals. Emily O'Leary from Ashton, Yvonne O'Byrne from Harlequins, two UCC players, Michaela Sanderson and Nikki Barry, and Faye Graham from Crescent. Olivia Roycroft from Bandon is up to five, and she's alongside Abby O'Mahony from UCC. And then in second place, Michelle Barry from Harlequins on six, but her teammate and her outright leader has been since the start of the season, Beth Ann O'Farrell on ten for Harlequins, and I don't know if anyone's going to catch her, Graham. Um, it's it's hard to say, but it is early in the season. Uh, but she she certainly has been in uh, in great form so far this year, and um, has that real instinct instinct for for, for goals. So um, yeah, I'm sure there there's some of her her teammates there um, eyeing her up, I suppose. And, <laughs> uh, plenty 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 from 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 UCC there as well will be will be keen to get a few goals on, on tonight as well. So yeah, we'll see how it goes. But uh, so far, so good for Bethan. Certainly is, yeah. I'm just trying to light fire under the people chasing her so we'll do an even tighter goal scoring race like we did last year. But uh, that's it. That's the wrap up for EY1 for Munster Division 1. Brilliant fixture tonight on Thursday evening, as we said, between top of the table clash between Harlequins and UCC at 7 o'clock. Get down to that if you can. And uh, we will be back next week with the Munster Hockey Bureau, Graham Catchball, to review everything and look ahead once again. But for now, here on the Big Red Bench, thanks very much for joining us, Graham. Thanks, Jeff. Miss the show? Grab the Big Red Bench podcast at redfm.ie. Cork's Red FM. Resident Red FM rugby expert Wendy Keenan joins me on this week's Cork's Red FM Big Red Bench Women in Sport podcast to review the latest women's AIL results where we focused on Bannon colleague women's RFC, the club's superb underage structures and why the future looks bright for the progressive Cork Women's Rugby Club. Wendy also has all the latest Munster Women's Adult Leagues and Munster Youth results plus an update on the return of the hugely popular Munster Minis. Now it is that time of the week again where we talk about all things Munster Women's Rugby. Loads of action both at adult and underage and youth and minis level uh, to talk about. So there's only one person to bring on and that's a resident Munster Women's Rugby and Rugby expert, Wendy Keenan. Wendy, you're very welcome back to the bench. How are you? I'm great, sir. How are you keeping? I'm good. I'm busy, but not half as busy as you are, I would imagine. And a lot of action happening at the moment uh, across Munster and fantastic to see it across the social media channels as well. Must commend all the clubs for their um, ability to get information out there. They've been very, very good this year. It's, it's easy to follow and so much happening. But we start at the very, very top and that's at the Women's AIL and a disappointing result for Balancolic. Yeah, they were defeated by Blackrock, 48-0. Um, they were away from home, of course. Um, you know, Blackrock are back to full strength now with the return of the Irish players from the uh, uh, WXVs. But um, let's talk about the good side of it, mm. OK? So, Baron Colleague have an awful lot of young players coming through. And some of those we would have mentioned because they featured in the Monster Under-18s last year. So, I'm just going to mention um, one or two of those. So, you have Kira and Aoife Fleming. So they're both twi- identical twins who play in the front row and they're having a phenomenal start to their adult, um, I suppose, pathway um, in the adult game. Um, they're starting their matches now, you know what I mean? They're they're holding their own. Um, they did very well against UL Bowes, which would have been a tough match for them. Um, you have Gillian Coombs, of course, we mentioned before, Saskia Witchley. They're all starting now for, um, you know, in the women's AIL 
and um, they have to come in through that pathway that they were talking about. So um, UL Bowes were on a week off. They hold their top spot. They're five points ahead. Remember, they got the couple of bonus points there at mm-hmm. the start. But Ballancolic are still holding that fifth position. And um, that's really good. You know what I mean? Um, you know, the railway, Black Rock, Old Belvedere, UL Bowes ahead of them, which you would expect because they've got a lot of the Irish players. But um, yeah, still holding that fifth position. So long may it continue. Absolutely, and as you said to us before, and you've you've pointed this out at the start of the season. I remember you saying it because we, we focused quite a lot on UL Bowes because obviously they got a star-studded lineup. But in the women's AIL, for Ballincollig to survive, you know, a lot of clubs come up to this level and they don't survive. It's just a fact of life that they don't have the resources, they don't have the underage structure. I think as well, and it's interesting that you've mentioned the young players there as well because they are going to be absolutely crucial. How important is it, Wendy, from your own experience as a player? You know, the experience you get when you're young and you're involved in this type of level at the very top of the country against those seasoned internationals for some of those established clubs. How important is it for a young player to be exposed to that? Whatever about representing your province, whatever about getting on a development squad, this is the nitty gritty on a Sunday, cold Sunday afternoon. And irrespective of the result, and it was a disappointing result for Ballon Colleague, staying fifth in this division and staying in the top half of this division, how important is that for the young players for next season and beyond? look really, really important. You've got to remember as well that those girls have won in Interpros, so they know what it's like to be winning matches. They're also very competitive. They're trying to get into that adult squad. One or two of them did this season. Two of them didn't, all right? And we're bitterly disappointed that they didn't. And that was a driving force for them. But I said, we have to look at the skill set. I mentioned the Fleming um, twins, um, two fantastic players. You know, they've engaged with the Front 5 programme that we've mentioned. They've been on the development pathways. They played in underage. But let's look at Ballancolic as a whole, right? They've got players coming from minis, under 14s, 16s, 18s. They have their WAL team and they also have a second team. So they've got a full pathway the whole way through. But these young girls are playing against their role models now that they have seen in green jerseys. And they have a point to prove. And you know what I mean? They've had the strength and conditioning advice. They've had the nutrition advice. They've attended the camps that we've had down in uh, Bandon during the summer. So you're seeing a very holistic approach, I suppose, in terms of their development under the women's development officers as well as their clubs. And uh, yeah, they're striving in that environment now. Um, If anything, it's probably driving them on. Mm. And when you have that competitiveness coming through, it'll bring along the other players maybe that have been there in the club a bit longer and say, you know, these girls have expectations. They are used to, um, you know, intense training, which they will get, you know, under the head coaches and and assistant coaches that are there now. When we look at Helen Brosnan, Kate McCarthy is actually involved in the administrative side. Um, You know, so the, the expectation is there, the expectation around winning, the expectation around performance at training, and that will drive the club on as a whole. Yeah, and that's a very good summation of it as well because, you know, you see a headline like that, 48 nil, you're going, oh my God, look at that. But the reality is very, very different and the fact that they've got that structure and the fact that that's the kind of structure other clubs should be striving for, um, you're going to have to take a couple of these results whether you like it or not at adult level simply because, as you've outlined, of the quality of opposition that you're playing. You're playing internationals and a lot of these girls with respect to them and don't mean to be rude are kids they want to be called kids but in terms of who they're up against um, so this is a set it's a disappointing result yes for Bannon Colleague but in the overall scheme of things it's worth I'm glad you've outlined that because it is worth remembering just how far this club has come um, with the underage structure and the pathway that they've got and there there are better days ahead for this Bannon Colleague team you know that better than I do and for these particular players and uh, hopefully next season they'll, they'll have gained from this and kick on yeah, that'll be year two for them in, um, you know, in the women's AIL. 
Mm. I mean, if you were taking on a team, you're looking at a, you know what I mean, a three-year plan usually, mm. you know what I mean, as a coach. We're now only in year two. They have a new head coach. So, you know, I think... I think they've they've done things correctly mm. in terms of, you know, useful resources and, and putting a plan in place. And now they're, you know, putting that plan, you know, in the execution phase. Excellent stuff. I know we're going to be talking a lot more about Balancotic in the years ahead, not just at that other level. And as we said, disappointing result against BlackRock, but you have to consider the quality of the opposition and the international side of it as well. We will be talking about them and the energy of women's All-Ireland League. Uh, UL Bowls are on a week off, as you said, a well-deserved week off, but they'll be back again next week and we'll focus in on them. We turn our attention now uh, to the Munster Division 1 uh, and Adult Division 1 and Division 2, where we've had a lot of interesting results, Wendy. Yeah, um, UL Bowls are really uh, holding their own here. They defeated Skibbereen 36-7 and that was an away match for them down in West Cork. Um, Tralee proved too strong for Dolphin. Dolphin, I think, had a few injuries. Um, issue then with numbers, I think. Um, they dropped their numbers, so 55-7 was the final score though. And a stalemate for the Ennis Rush as they drew with Shannon, 12-all there. So um, Ennis would be absolutely thrilled with their, you know, I mean, that result. Well, let's look at the Division 2, another exciting one for you. I mentioned this last week, Brough, their second mm. league match ever, and it was another win against Thurless. Lots of tries, though, in this match. 33-24, nine tries scored in total, 5-4 to four being the uh, so uh, the, the final number of uh, tries. What an exciting match, if, if anybody had been, been at it. Middleton, um, would too, would be very delighted. They defeated Mallow, another close match. Both of them scored three tries, actually. It was the kicking that uh, differentiated them. 21-17 was the final score there. And Bantry Bay proved too strong for Clonakilty. 51-12 final score there. So uh, Bantry Bay are another club that are, are building in strength year in, year out. Yeah, and again, it's always re- refreshing to hear the breadth of teams from across the province involved in a fantastic seed, a number of clubs as well, now playing at adult level at both Division 1 and Division 2, and let's hope that continues. Congrats to all the winners there, and we can focus on those divisions again next week. We turn our attention to the youths section of the Munster Women's Rugby, and you've got results from 14, under 16, and under 18, and there's quite a lot of results, and there's quite a lot to get through, so I'm just going to let you get on with it. Thanks. And Jerry, I should mention the under 18s run a weekend off. Sorry. So they, I'm not going to list out the, no, I'm not going to list out their friendlies. So okay. we'll, we'll stick with the, with the under 16s. We'll start and we'll work our way down to the under 14s. So lots of scores. So Richmond Old Crescent, 28. Kilrush to, to top for them there, 39. So 39, uh, 28 was the score there. Dolphin too strong for Ballancolic. Uh, 30-0 was the final score there. Dunmanway defeated um, Canturk. Mallow Mitchellstown were beaten by Clonakilty. Uh, UL Bowes Gary Owen were narrowly defeated by Ballinacaloo. 15-12 was the final score there. Brough narrowly defeated Feather Thurless 14-0. Very close encounter here between Ennis and Shannon with Ennis coming in, out on, on top 33-28. And then Middleton Yard again too strong for Water Park uh, 19-5. So they're the under-16 uh, conference matches that took place. At under-14 we had Dunmanway Bantry defeating the Mallow-Mitchellstown amalgamation 24-14 was the final score there. Another stalemate Cove Pirates would be delighted they held their own with the Dolphin Mallow Old Christians Amalgamation. Clonakilty, too strong for Tralee, 28-0. Rough, 24. Old Crescent, 17. So uh, Old Crescent will be uh, disappointed with that result with their neighbours, Brough. Mm. And uh, Feathered's Thurless, too strong for Gary Owen, Galio, uh, uh, Gary Owen Galbally on this occasion, 30-0 being the final score there. 
Um, again, lots of tries, lots of tries, but lots of close scores as well. Um, you know, and this is the thing. Over time, as, teen, as girls get more and more used to being exposed to rugby at an earlier age, you don't get the big high scores that you would normally have gotten a few years ago. I mean, is that is that a trend, or am I am I over uh, overstepping the mark? No, that's due to the, um, you know what I mean, the standard of rugby that's been played and also the level of coaching. I have to give credit to the work that's been done in the clubs around the development of the volunteers, um, you know what I mean, and the attending of the coaching and specialised coaching sessions as well. And remember, also we also have a development league at under 14 and under 16 for any team that might feel they're not ready for that 15-side game. Mm-hmm. Um, so they would have entered that. Maybe we'll talk a little bit next week about the development leagues. But um, that is due to the work that's been done in the school, the work that's been done in the club, the work that's been done on the development pathways. And well done to everybody involved, is all I say. Yeah, that development league is a great idea, especially for, for as you said, clubs that might not necessarily have the numbers or the interest, but they can play in a kind of a non-competitive, but still get a feel for the sport um, at that age group, and especially with girls. I think it's a great idea because you keep them involved. Um, lots of action again across the province, as we said, in both adult and the uh, Munster Division 1, Division 2, and the under 14, under 16. There was under 18 games this last week, but they were all friendlies. But we finished with one of our favourite subjects on this podcast and has been for many, many years. And I know one that's very dear to your own heart, Wendy, and that's the minis. What can you tell us about that? So I suppose we haven't mentioned the minis, so I just thought we'd mention them this week that um, Norma, we have a fantastic minis coordinator in place. She has divided the province north and south because of the numbers that we've had. I mean, we were reporting there at one stage, we have 203 or something on one one of our, our, our blitzes last year, which is really a huge amount of number to organise. So they're split. There are six blitzes, I think, each, each each side of the province. So we'll just talk about the south maybe this week. Mm-hmm. So we had Corcon last week. Now on the 26th, we have Water Park at the same date on the 26th. It'll be feathered in the north. Um, so there's lots and lots of teams participating. They have under 10s, under 12s. Um, you know, and then we have the mixed blitzes as well, where the girls are attending at that. So maybe over the next couple of weeks, we'll bring Norma on and uh, she can give us some of the numbers in relation to that. You're dead right. I love seeing the minis playing. Um, just I love to see the engagement and, you know, the support that around them and, and the fun that they're having. I mean, that's the main thing, isn't it? Let's, and in relation to the development leagues, I mean, we train to play matches in sport. Mm. So it's only fair that they would have, you know, a competition, you know, and we haven't even mentioned our school's cup with our, our deadlines coming up in December. But, you know, we are exploring the possibility now that with the numbers that we have, could we have an under 14s competition? So, um, if we look at the state of the game, I refuted a survey about the state of the game. And with the numbers increasing the way they are, it is actually volunteers we're going to run out of, not players. So we, that's a great complaint because we can address that. It certainly is. Yeah, we, as you said, we haven't even touched the Cups and the Cups will be coming up soon enough. Um, but yes, the Minis, and I think just the line alone that you've decided and Niamh is as the Minis coordinator, we will speak to her in the coming weeks because yeah. splitting it up north uh, and so it wasn't done because, she, you know, it was a good idea. She probably had to, as you said, because the numbers now are so big. And as you said, this is where, when all sports, where you turn to the volunteers, you turn to the parents, you turn to the coaches and you turn for that help at that level. And every now and again, you find a gem of someone then who didn't realise that they wanted to get involved until they did and didn't realise how exciting and how fun and how engaging it can be. And then you have somebody who's more willing to keep with those girls all the way up through the pathway. Yeah, I mean, 
I was asked a question recently about, you know, how many volunteers you think. And I said, well, what about the people that are making the tea or they're doing the WhatsApp group or mm. they're bringing the water or they're carrying the first aid kit? They're all contributing, you know what I mean, to the club, um, which is really, really important. But yeah, I suppose, and it's easier on the volunteers if, you know, if you're, if you're driving, uh, you know, your little girl an hour up the road as opposed to two hours up the road, mm. it does make it a little bit easier decision whether, you know, what you're doing next weekend in terms of blitz attendance. So we're going to see those numbers flourish, no doubt. Absolutely great stuff. Can't wait to hear more about the minis and I know we'll talk about them as the weeks go on. But uh, another action pack week of Women's AL, Munster Adult Division 1, Division 2 and Youth and Minis, of course, which we have discussed this week with our resident Munster rugby expert, Wendy Keenan. Wendy, thank you very much once again for joining us on The Big Red Bench. Thanks a million, Derek. The Big Red Bench. Saturday and Sunday from 6pm. Cork's Red FM's Formula One expert Sarah McKenzie Foley joins me on the Big Red Bench Women in Sport podcast to provide analysis and her expert opinion on this coming weekend's Las Vegas Grand Prix. Sarah speaks about the great unknowns about this new Las Vegas circuit, including the curbs, track limits and tyre degradation. Sarah also discusses the fact infrastructure investments from F1 to get this Grand Prix race in place in the first place are now estimated to have run to about $700 million, but ticket sales may not be matching the expense. Here's Sarah. On the Big Red Bench, it is time to talk Formula One once again as we look ahead to this weekend's Las Vegas GP. And uh, joining us here is Corkshire FM's Big Red Bench presenter and Formula One expert Sarah McKenzie Foley. Sarah, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, people can't get away from me. It's just, it's too late now. You're omnipresent. How <laughs> oh bad, how oh bad. Uh, we're here to talk about the Las Vegas GP. So it's on paper, Sarah, it's the second last Grand Prix of the season. Max Verstappen and Red Bull have already commandeered just about everything there is in terms of winning. There is some interesting storylines that will come out of it and into the final Grand Prix at Abu Dhabi mm. the following week. But um, things like the curbs, things like track limits, uh, we usually have some sort of idea going into Grand Prix, as do the drivers. Uh, but this is different. Uh, this is a very new circuit and it's going to be held at night as well. But talk to us about those unknowns, what that means for a Formula One driver. I mean, it's pretty much everything, to be honest with you. Um, obviously, Formula One have been building up to this race now for quite a while. But as you say, it's it's completely new, everything down to the circuit. And it's... Basically, you have no historical data and for engineers and all the people that are behind the scenes trying to create strategies, etc. That's a really big problem because you obviously have to rely very heavily then on your practice sessions. Luckily, they didn't have the madness to make it a sprint weekend on top of everything else. It's a normal, a normal format weekend. So I think there's going to be a huge amount of learning in those free practice sessions and the drivers and the teams are going to have to just really lean in to whatever they learn there, because it's just, it's going to be a real challenge. And, you know, I kind of, I suggested that it would be either exciting or disastrous, but as I thought of it, I was like, okay, it could be both. (laughs) It could, it could deliver both. Um, You know, these, these guys are at the top of their game, but at the end of the day, it's, it's tough when you're going in with zero historical data because they do rely on it quite heavily. Yes, and that's the thing. I mean, the drivers can do a certain amount. They can base their telemetry on previous experiences of going around different circuits. So the car can be set up in a certain way, depending on the way that the car and the downforce and all the things that come into it. You would expect that the reigning uh, world champion, the three-time world champion, Max Verstappen, is somebody that would take all of these things on board or would do a bit of research. Uh, it hasn't worked out too too well from though thus far in the build-up to the Las Vegas Grand Prix. Can you explain why? No. Yeah, there was a funny quote where Max admitted that he'd found his preparations for Vegas quite challenging. He said he kept hitting the walls of the circuit when he was 
playing the F1 game, testing out the circuit. It has to be said that was prior to any official simulator work. But I think possibly what will work in their favour here, certainly for teams like Red Bull and Williams, is that it's not a technically complex circuit. It's a lot of really long, fast straights followed by slow corners. And unfortunately for everyone else, that does suit the Red Bull quite well. Uh, So I think his job will not be, you know, too taxing, I don't think. But it is, it's just funny that he kind of admitted that and he was just very, you know, blasé about it. He wasn't really concerned. Yeah, easy to be blasé when you're the three-time champion. It costs nothing to crash a car in a simulator. Just for anyone listening that are gamers, can I just say, like, I was a big Formula One and NASCAR gamer back in a million years ago. Mm Try the game with everything turned off, with all the things that help you. Try and do every single setting uh, to the point where it is as close as it possibly can be to a Formula 1 driver. I've never managed to start the car, let alone crash the car. So that tells you how (laughs) bloody difficult it is. So, you know, crashing into uh, walls in a simulator, fair play to Max. The first lap in M has a bit of history with that as well. We won't go into that. Before we talk about the infrastructure and the investments and things like that and going to America, and we've talked about it before, this Grand Prix, it's the penultimate weekend, Sarah, um, for Mercedes, after the disastrous, I mean, there's just no other way of putting it, but like the disastrous Brazilian Grand Prix, Toto was really harsh comments about the whole thing and where they are and where they aren't. This is now, I would say, as important a Grand Prix as it, you know, a title winning one for Hamilton in his run. They've got to respond here. They've, they can't have a repeat and then all oh, the pressure going to Abu Dhabi. They've got to do something here, haven't they? Completely. And I think... The the good news is that there is still potential for Lewis Hamilton to either hold on to third place in the in the uh, drivers championship, excuse me, or overtake Sergio Perez, and likewise, you know, Mercedes still could very much finish second in the constructors. But it really, as you say, is going to have to be the total opposite of what happened in Brazil, and it's going to be really tough if they finish the season without a win because I think even the one win that they did get last year, it just meant so much to them. Yeah, And it, you know, we're getting closer and closer. As you said, there's only two races left and look, they're all very clearly sick of the car, but at the end of the day, they still have a job to do. And at this point, the job is ironically only getting more and more important. So I think it's really these last two races are potentially the most high stakes, really, that Mercedes have had so far this year. And you just hope that they're able to to pull out some kind of consistent performance and just get a better understanding of the car, because that's really where things are going wrong for them. Yeah, as you said, and you're correctly said, you just can't have a repeat of Brazil because, you know, that's two disasters in a row and for a company and for what it's prestige and what it's history, Mercedes, you just can't have that. So, I mean, I think there is a little bit of extra pressure. Hamilton, I reckon, will be able to handle it. George Russell will be interesting. See how he goes. Now, we will do a full review um, of the Las Vegas Grand Prix on next week's Women's Sport podcast, uh, where we will also talk about Ferrari, McLaren and Aston Martin, three other teams that are, you know, scrambling for points and drivers want to finish their season on a high before they go to Abu Dhabi. But as it stands, uh, yeah, Mercedes are the one everyone is going to be watching very closely because 
unfortunately their chances of winning I think are pretty slim considering how far ahead of the pack as we've gone over many times Max Verstappen is and maybe just an attract that he's not used to and that he hasn't seen before it might even things out but I don't think so but we'll see we'll see how it goes now one of the things about Las Vegas and promoting Formula 1 and we've talked at length about this especially in the United States has tied in with the Netflix series which has been hugely successful drive to survive but the investments from Formula 1 to go back to America after the Austin Grand Prix Sarah like a lot of money pumped in has it has it so far paid back? Unfortunately not. I mean, you kind of alluded to it there, but the infrastructure investments that Formula One has made just solely for this Vegas race to actually happen, they're estimated to run to about $700 million. Wow. And so far, the only major ticket category that's sold out is general admission, which usually, you know, tends to be the the cheapest i had a quick look before coming on and the next category up is a grandstand ticket and it's going to cost you upwards of two thousand dollars for a three-day ticket for a grandstand and that's before you even get into the paddock tickets etc so it just it's pricing the average formula one Mm. fan out of the market essentially and you know all these celebrities that come and fill the the box seats, etc. They're not paying to be there. In some cases, they're being paid to be there. Uh, so I think it's it's a bit awkward. It got awkward in the last couple of weeks because we started to see advertisements online for extras. They were being called to attend the race, so people were actually going to be paid to attend the race. I've never, ever seen that before. And it just, it just doesn't bode well when you've really, I hate to use the word gambled because we're talking Mm. about Vegas, but you've gambled so much money Mm. on this. There was a showcase and everything prior and you're not sold out. It's just, it doesn't look great, I don't think. No, it doesn't. And I think what's happened here and pardon the pun, I think the F1 hierarchy have been blindsided or blinded by the lights of Vegas. They've seen mm-hmm. what MMA and UFC does. They've seen what big boxing fights are very few and far between, unfortunately, nowadays when it comes to boxing. And they've also seen what the new stadium and possibly with the sphere as well that's gone in there. Like the people are coming to Vegas now. It's not just the high rollers. It's just not, not just the gamblers. It's not just all those people looking to do what you do in Vegas, what I haven't done myself, but also <laughs> attracting a different group and maybe the families and maybe, but it's not really a family orientated city, but you're right. I mean, if, if, if they're struggling now this close to the Grand Prix to get that kind of crowd and get that kind of return, that's a real worry. And I, it was the big concern I had at the start of the year. And we saw the, the we talked about the Grand Prix calendar, like Austin is Austin. It's, it's, it's established. Mm. It's, it's motor racing. It's motor racing fans that will go there because they're used to going there. You are gambling, as you rightly said, pardon the pun, uh, with Vegas and hoping that it will be something different. But And I again, I go back to it. This, to me, smacks of a Netflix episode that they went somebody somewhere mm. in a boardroom went, if we have one in Vegas, that would be brilliant. It would be great camera. It would look fantastic, which it will, like it does with the other night races, I assume. Uh, but if the, if, if the support isn't there, it's not going to last. And that's the other thing about it. Talk to me about the fact that the qualifying, when qualifying is going ahead in terms of the local time, it seems very unusual what they've chosen. Yeah, they're, I suppose they're kind of leaning into the Vegas team, if anything, a little bit too hard because the strategic, we're going to, we're going to compliment them and say a strategic decision that they've made as far as the timings for the sessions. Qualifying is taking place at midnight local time. Again, 
even for the drivers, you know mm. what I mean? Like, how do you, what other sport requires mm. you to be at your peak level of concentration, mm. physical performance at midnight? It, it doesn't, I understand, I understand all the entertainment and aesthetic as you kind of, you know, mentioned. Mm. I understand all of that. But at the end of the day, when you look at the fundamentals of the sport and the mechanics of what what kind of contributes to a good race, it's just really hard to see mm. it coming together. And when you add to the fact that it's winter time, I know it's the desert, but it is actually the temperatures are going to be quite cold. Even the cars are going to struggle to get up to speed on, you know, in those conditions at that time of day. So there's there's a lot really to be revealed here. I think everyone's going to be sort of watching from behind their fingers because none of us really have any idea how this is going to turn out. But it's going to be very interesting, to say the least. I think that's about the best way we can sell it, uh, Sarah, mm-hmm. as you've outlined there, to be fair. Uh, now, I think I'm correct in saying, oh, 600 hours, so 6 a.m. in the morning, I think Irish Greenwich Mean Time is when it's going ahead. Check online to be absolutely certain, but it is this Sunday, the 19th of November. It is Las Vegas Street Circuit. It is the second last Grand Prix of the 2023 season in Las Vegas. There's no real point in going over the driver standings. You know who's the top. You know who's mm-hmm. won it. Max is way out in front. There's no point in going over the Constructors' Championship because you know who's way out in front and knows who's won it. But what would be interesting, what we will talk about is who finishes second and third and who doesn't finish in that top three of the constructors the drivers in other days work but the constructors definitely we will come back to that next uh, week's Women in Sport podcast will have a full debrief on the Las Vegas GP with a resident Formula 1 expert and Big Red Bench presenter on the radio now Sarah McKenzie Foley but in the interim Sarah where can we find your online motorsport content yeah, absolutely. So you can find me on Twitter at MacTweets underscore. I will be live tweeting the excitement slash disaster, whatever happens. And you could also find me on YouTube as well for more in-depth content. So you just need to search Sarah McKenzie F1. Brilliant stuff. Great talking to you as always, Sarah. And we will talk to you again next week about what will hopefully be, I think it will be, an event-filled Las Vegas Grand Prix. But for now, from everybody here in the Big Red Bench Women's Sport Podcast, thank you very much. Thanks, sir. The Big Red Bench. Saturday and Sunday from 6pm. Now, this Sunday, the November the 19th at 3 o'clock at the Cladov GAA Complex, there is a very special match taking place. It is a charity match in aid of Marymount University Hospital and Hospice. And it is a game between the East Cork LGFA Division and the West Cork LGFA Division. Two panel of players coming together to raise money for a very, very worthy cause. I'm delighted now on the Big Red Bench to be joined by the manager of the East Cork Division team on that day. And that is St. Nick's Garden Kinsley. Garden, you're very welcome to the bench. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. Um, a big match uh, this weekend, as I said, three o'clock at Clodove GA grounds in aid of Marymount University Hospital and Hospice between the East Cork Division and the West Cork Division. Can I ask you first, Garden, um, what's the thinking behind this and why are you raising money for Marymount? I suppose I, I was asked to get involved um, by East Cock Board and when I heard of Mary Mount, it's, it's, it's a charity close to my own heart through my own mother and my own family and I jumped on it straight away. I said there's no issue whatsoever. Um, it's for a great cause uh, for Mary Mount and the work that they do in the hospice there. And the second point, I suppose, in relation to, I suppose it's also about girls having an opportunity to develop and represent their division. Um, some girls may not have went on to develop, to, develop, to uh, represent their division before, and now there's a great opportunity for them to do that. Um, and highlight clubs in the divisions, uh, smaller clubs, bigger clubs, middle clubs, of players that we have in East Cork. 
Yes, and I'm glad you mentioned East Cork. I know West Cork, and I would have covered West Cork myself, the divisional team that was involved in the Cork LGFA Senior Football Championship not that long ago. Now, they won a Cork Senior Championship. They've since not been involved for various reasons. But there was an East Cork division not so long ago competing at this level as well. I mean, is this an opportunity, as you said, not just for players from clubs who wouldn't normally get a chance to play, maybe against senior opposition, but an opportunity for those players um, you know, to maybe down the road possibly represent East Cork in an actual uh, serious competition um, I think that's probably the hope of the divisions um, in, in, in doing that um, I think it'll be a great opportunity I remember back when Imakiri was uh, East Cork was represented before um, it was represented well um, I know I went off the boil I would delight to see West Cork uh, a few years back representing the, in the, the county final um, I think it's a great opportunity for not only but it's also for the clubs and for the individual players within the clubs that won't probably get an opportunity to get on to the, represent the county. It's another added bonus to that to represent your own division. Um, and I, I, I'd welcome that. I think it's a fantastic opportunity. It's doing the men's have it, the pierogi have it. You know, so mm-hmm. if they went back to the discussions again with that and, and, and operate a structure within that, I think it'd be fantastic. Um, you're not short uh, people willing to put their hand up for selection anyway you've got a big panel for this weekend's game against West Cork I have Joe um, surprisingly I have um, I have a panel of 30 players um, there's probably 15 clubs represented on that 14 to 15 clubs represented on that Middleton are very well represented uh, in that uh, Wildgrass Hill Rockbourn Yall St. Nick's uh, Liz Gould um so there's, 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 there's good appetite. I'm having a Zoom this evening just on the routine stuff with all those players. Um, and while it's a charity game and it's going to be benefiting uh, the clubs and benefiting, I think we still go to, show, to showcase football, you know? Yeah, and you've mentioned it. it's great to hear that there's that interest and a level of interest. Obviously, it's a charity game. It's for a very good cause, but there's obviously a lot of players in that East Cork division that want to put their hand up as well and show people what they're capable of. I know from recent weeks, the success of Rock Bond, especially winning a county junior B, and you all have gotten their act together as well in recent years. There's some very, very good players in this division, Gordon, and you know them. I do, I do. There's Jenny Wheeling, Rock Bond, um, Mike Hoyer, Bullman. There's, there's girls from the probably never had showcase before in relation to, there's a girl called Tara McCarthy from St. Nick's, Kleena Cronin, who was a good cock miner from Wildgrass Hill. Uh, Sarah Murphy from Bride Rovers, uh, goalkeeping there. Uh, Edel Murphy, who was an ex cock miner as well back in the day. So there, there's some good old, old heads and some good youth coming through within that. And hopefully that we can blend the mix Sunday and, and put on a good show for people for Marymount. Indeed. And just finally, uh, we've mentioned the East Cork Division panel. You're going to be up against uh, a division I know quite well because I live in the division area that yeah. where, where football is very popular and there's a lot of interest in it. Um, it is a charity match. It's a very important charity, as we've mentioned. But you're also an opportunity for players to put themselves up against uh, some of the best in the West Cork Division. I would imagine you'll still want to win it, even though it's a charity match, Gordon. We'll go and compete, Joe. We'll go and compete. <laughs> Um, and uh, uh, the, the real winners here, by honestly, are, are Marymount. You know, and the real winners here are the clubs represented, showing their support for Marymount for a great hospice uh, in what they do. Very well said, Gordon Kinsley. I'm saying next, as we've mentioned, this uh, this Sunday, uh, the 19th of November at three o'clock. If you can make it down there, please get down to the Clidove GAA complex because there will be a very, very entertaining and uh, a hard hitting, dare I say, a charity match between the East Cork and West Cork LGFA divisions in aid of a fantastic uh, Marymount University 
hospital and hospice. Anyone who can get down there and contribute, it would be greatly, greatly appreciated. But for now, Gordon Kingsley, uh, the East Cork Division Manager on the day, thank you very, very much for taking the time to speak to us here on the Big Red Bench. Thank you, Jack. That's it for another Big Red Bench Women in Sport podcast. Remember to subscribe to the Big Red Bench on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and you can also listen online at redextra.ie. Don't forget to tune into the Big Red Bench with Rory O'Hagan, Colm O'Sullivan, and guests between 6 and 7 p.m. on the radio every Saturday and Sunday. Follow the Big Red Bench across all our social media channels, as well as visiting our official website, redfm.ie. The Big Red Bench. Saturday and Sunday from 6 p.m. Cork's Red FM.